Hey everybody. Okay, we're down to our last week of the judges study and I'm so glad that y'all have stuck with it to the end. I'm Nicole Hager and I have so enjoyed working through this book with you all. Today we're going to be in the conclusion section of the book and we're going to be looking at a few stories that really show us how incredibly deep the Israelite sin goes. Today's a long one, but please stick with me to the end. It is so worth it. Before we start though, I want to take a minute to recognize some of the main authors and commentators whose work has really helped me greatly in preparing this study. I was an English major in college and one thing that I left with firmly embedded in my brain is to give credit where credit is due. So while I did do my best to study the text on my own first and draw my own conclusions, I then benefited so much from Tim Keller's book called Judges for You, also from some audio sessions over Judges that Jen Wilkin did a long time ago, and then a book called Judges Such a Great Salvation by Dale Ralph Davis. Um, each week I probably used other commentaries and resources, but these three are the ones that I consistently used, and I really want to credit a lot of the great insights um, that I found in my teaching um, to them, because they were really, really helpful. Okay, so let's get started. We have a lot to cover today, so we're going to jump in. Um, if you remember back in the introduction to Judges, we saw that there was sort of a double introduction where the same story was told from two different perspectives. And now for the conclusion, we have a different kind of double conclusion to kind of balance it out. We're not going to see the same story told twice like we did in the introduction, but we are going to see two stories that are both going to serve as examples of how bad things have gotten with the Israelites. And when I say that things have gotten bad, I don't mean bad as in they're being oppressed really badly. These stories don't need an outside oppressor. The Israelites do find all on their own of being pretty much terrible. This conclusion is so bleak that every single commentary and resource that I looked at mentions something about the fact that you never hear this taught on. And if you look at it in isolation, it makes absolutely no sense. And it would make almost anyone just reject it outright. One commentator even joked about picturing some old pastors looking at the text and kind of furrowing their brows and then thinking, eh, I'm just going to preach over Philippians instead. <laughs> because this is the perfect example of why it is so important to study scripture in contexts. This conclusion to Judges serves a very important purpose that can only be understood after reading the entire progression of what leads up to it in the book. One author kind of described the main text of Judges as giving a bird's eye view of what was going on in the nation of Israel during the period of the Judges. So this conclusion then really narrows in on the nitty gritty of the depths of the two tribes' sin, of the tribes' sin throughout. So let's start with the first story, which is found in chapters 17 and 18. So let's start with chapter 17, verse 1. Now there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver which were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse in my hearing, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. He then returned the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son, to make a graven image and a molten image. Now therefore I will return them to you. So when he returned the silver to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave them to the silversmith, who made them into a graven image and a molten image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household idols, and consecrated one of his sons that he might become his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So. We're introduced to Micah by learning that he has stolen 1,100 pieces of silver from his own mother. So hopefully you can see right off the bat that we're not supposed to view his actions as really honorable. And if you remember last week, we learned that 1,100 pieces of silver was a fortune in that time. For reference, Micah offers to pay the priest later in the story 10 pieces of silver a year. So 1,100 is a huge amount. 
So of course his mother's upset, and she speaks a curse on whoever stole it, but she doesn't know that this is her own son that she's speaking this curse over. And in those days, having a curse spoken over you wasn't something that they would have brushed off or taken lightly. They took that very seriously. So clearly, Micah is so bothered by the fact that he had this curse spoken over him that he decides to confess to his mother that it was him, most likely in some effort to break out from under the curse that she spoke. And then look at how she responds. Is she mad at him? No, she says, blessed be my son by the Lord. Guys, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure that if I had an adult son and he came and told me that he had stolen basically my whole fortune, more than enough money to last a lifetime, those probably wouldn't be the first words out of my mouth. But remember, she had spoken a curse over whoever stole from her, and she just now realized that that curse that she spoke, she unknowingly spoke it over her son. So she was probably more concerned with lifting that curse off of him than with anything else at that point. So then she sets to work trying to make things right with God and erase this whole curse business. So what does she do? She uses some of the silver to make a graven image and a molten image. What do we know about graven images? Does the Lord like them? Is he honored by them in any way? Has he ever given the slightest indication that they're acceptable? No. If you did the homework, you will see multiple times God told the Israelites specifically not to do this. And did you notice that she says, I wholly dedicate the silver from my hand to the Lord, but then she only uses 200 pieces of silver to do it and keeps the other 900 for herself. So I'm having a tough time seeing anything here so far that looks honoring to the Lord. So Micah makes this graven image, and it's not of Baal or of any of the false gods. This is supposed to be of the one true God, the God of Israel. So we're seeing these major distortions of how the God of Israel is being worshipped. So then what does Micah do? He makes an ephod, some household items, and then consecrates his son to become his priest. Now, if you remember in the, in the story about Gideon, Gideon also made an ephod. And so we learned that at that point is where his story started to take a turn downhill. Why? Because there was only supposed to be one ephod, and it was supposed to remain at the temple in Shiloh. This was where they were supposed to direct their worship, and the ephod was God's way of speaking to them and guiding them. So to make his own ephod was to try to control God in some way. He was trying to conform God to serve him rather than him serving God and obeying God's commands. And then as far as the household idols, it's hopefully obvious why those are bad at this point in the study. Um, and then finally, he consecrates his son to be his priest, which if you did the homework, you will see that God gave specific instructions that only the sons of Aaron and then the Levites were to be priests. This was so important that God, in that part that I had you read, told them that any layman who came near to some of these priestly duties was to be put to death. But did Micah care? Clearly not. Instead, he seems to think that the rules that God laid out to all of Israel didn't apply to him. And he sets about completely distorting the worship of the one true God. He, is, he essentially creates his own God, who is similar enough to still pass his Yahweh to those around him. But in reality, this was a God's of Micah's creation. One who could bring Micah power and esteem and be shaped to fit the society that they were in. And one who was really just more convenient to him to not have to go to Shiloh, but he could just do all of this right where he was. So what about us, though? Do we ever do the same thing? Do we ever come to God, if we're honest with ourselves, do we come to God and say, shape me, change me, show me who you really are? Or do we pick and choose the things about God that we like, follow him in ways that suit us, and create a picture of him that seems acceptable to the culture around us? So before you judge Micah too harshly, be sure you look inward and do some hard reflection and repentance. Because like I've said before, and we talked about in this study, human nature has not changed. 
And let's draw your attention for a second to verse 6, in case you're still not convinced that we're supposed to read all of this as being very bad. Almost all of these last five chapters we're going to look at today, they're completely descriptive. They're basically just telling us something that happened, and they don't give a whole lot of glances into God's perspective. But here, though, is one of the few times that the author gives his own interpretation of the events. He says that every man did what was right in their own eyes. Where have we seen that before? If you remember, it was last week with Samson. He looked at that Philistine woman and said, get her for me. She is right in my eyes. We saw with Samson the beginning of Israel starting to make their own judgments on how to live rather than looking to the Lord for guidance. And we see here that this is basically true for all of Israel. God was supposed to be their king, but we see in verse 6 that they had no king. They all did whatever they thought was right. We see very little of God in these last five chapters because that was the reality that the Israelites had made for themselves. Let's move on. Let's pick back up in verse 7. Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite, and he was staying there. Then the man departed from the city, from Bethlehem in Judah, to stay wherever he might find a place. And as he made his journey, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to stay wherever I may find a place. Micah then said to him, Dwell with me and be a father and priest to me, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, a suit of clothes, and your maintenance. So the Levite went in. And the Levite agreed to live with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. So Micah consecrated to the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, seeing I have a Levite as priest. All right, so we meet an actual Levite priest who is staying wherever he might find a place. Hmm. Should a Levite have been staying wherever he wanted to? No, really he should not have. He should have been back in the town that he came from, serving as a priest to the people there. So it kind of looks like this priest is also doing whatever was right in his own eyes. So Micah asks him to stay and be his priest, and the priest agrees. And Micah says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me. It's really interesting to kind of think about Micah's perspective on all of these events, because through his eyes, it probably felt like the Lord was really blessing his actions. Things were going pretty well for him, he probably thought. You know, he felt really guilty about stealing that money, and so he did the right thing and confessed to his mom, and now look at all he has. He's got this ephod and these idols, and now he probably thinks that God is really blessing him even more by bringing this actual Levite priest to him. In his eyes, God is blessing him, but in reality, God is not honored one bit by this whole situation, and these things are not blessings from God. So then we come to the tribe of Dan. And if you're wondering what we're supposed to think of the Danites, the beginning of the first line of chapter 18 should clue you in. It reads, In those days there was no king of Israel. Now we just heard that in verse 6 when the author explained that everyone was doing whatever they wanted, whatever seemed right to them. So we have a hint here that the tribe of Dan is no different. So we kind of he's giving us the lenses of which we're supposed to read their actions. So let's read what they do. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king of Israel, and in those days the tribe of Danites was seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in, for until that day an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtal, to spy out the land and to search it. And they said to them, Go search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite, and they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? 
And he said to them, Thus so has Micah done to me, and he has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. And the priest said to him, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. Okay, first of all, it says here that they were seeking an inheritance because one had not been allotted to them as a possession. In actuality, one had been allotted to them, but that one that was originally allotted, they no longer possessed. So this isn't saying that God forgot to give them their portion of the land. In the homework, you saw that in Joshua 19, God clearly gave them their portion. But in Judges chapter 1, we saw that the Amorites forced them out. So they failed to possess the land that God gave them. So rather than seeking God and asking his favor and then trying to get that land back that God had promised them, believing that God was going to do what he said he would do for them, instead, they decide to go and find their own land of their own choosing. So while they're looking for land, they come across Micah's house and they recognize something familiar about the priest. It was probably something about his dialect, not something about him specifically, um, but they probably just could recognize that he was maybe from someplace that was familiar to them. Um, and then they seek him and they ask if God is going to show them favor. Now, what do we know about this priest? We know that he's run from God and he's not serving in the manner that he should be. And then it says that he told them something that God said, but there's no indication here that God actually told the priest that he would favor the Danites. The Danites. The priest, it says that the priest said it, but it doesn't say the priest inquired of the Lord. It doesn't say the Lord said it to him. It kind of looks like the priest tells them what they want to hear, which is that, yeah, of course, sure, God's going to show you favor. Because we're seeing throughout this story, and we're going to see it even more, that this priest is pretty self-serving. So they go to claim the land that they chose, not the one that God chose for them. And let's look at the land that they chose. Let's pick back up at verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were in it living in security, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. For there was no ruler humiliating them or for anything in the land, and they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtal, their brother said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you sit still? Do not delay to go. Enter to possess the land. When you enter, you shall come to a secure people with a spacious land, for God has given it into your hand, a place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorah and from Eshtal, six hundred men armed with weapons of war set out. And they went up and camped in Kariath Jerim and in Judah. Therefore they called that place Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kariath Jerim. And they passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. So how did it make you feel when you read about the people in the land that they were about to take? If you're human, you probably felt like this is icky and sad. And you know what? You're supposed to feel that way. Don't for a second read this and think that God is the cruel one for leading them to take this land from these people, peaceful people. This was written in a way to make the reader think that the Danites are the cruel ones. The Danites turned away from the land that God gave them, and the author tells us more than once that the land they took instead belonged to this peaceful and quiet people. They're writing in a way to make you read this and know that it was wrong. You're supposed to feel bad for the people that are getting attacked, and you're supposed to know that this was against God's will. This is showing us the depravity of the tribe of Dan. God was not pleased with what they were doing, despite those, that priest's empty words. The author has already shown us that this priest is not godly and does whatever serves himself. And so we really can't trust the words that he said to the Danites. And then we're about to see that even more. We have good cause not to trust his words. Let's pick back up in verse 14. 
Then the five men who went to spy out the country of Laish answered and said to their kinsmen, Do you know that there are in these houses an ephod and household idols and graven image and molten image? Now therefore consider what you should do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young man, the Levite, to the house of Micah, and asked him of his welfare. And the six hundred men armed with the weapons of war, who were the sons of Dan, stood by the entrance of the gate. Now the five men who went to spy out the land went up and entered there, and took the graven image and the ephod and the household items and the molten image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the graven image, the ephod and the household idols and the molten image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Be silent, put your hand over your mouth and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. It's better for you to be a priest to the house of one is it better for you to be the priest of a house of one man, or to be the priest to a tribe and a family in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad, and he took the ephod and the household idols and the graven image and went among the people. So basically the people of Dan, they go back and they tell each other, hey, that guy Micah had an ephod and a bunch of graven images. Consider what you should do. Now, if they were seeking God, the answer to consider what you should do should have been, let's go and destroy all these images. These are wrong. And let's rebuke Micah severely. But remember, everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So what conclusion did they come to instead? Hey, let's steal it all and use it for ourselves. How messed up does a group of people need to be to think that God would be honored by them stealing, which they would have known that stealing was a sin, but not just stealing anything, but stealing a bunch of graven images, an illegitimate ephod, and then using all of these things for their whole tribe to worship? Does this sound to you like a people who know the true nature and character of God who has led them for generations out of slavery and delivered them time and again from their oppressors? Not at all. This sounds like a people who would rather create a God of their own choosing than seek out the one true God. So they steal all of Micah's religious items, and not only that, they ask his priests to come with them and be their priests instead. This is the priest that just basically said that he was kind of like a father to this guy. And they lured him with the appeal of having greater influence of recognition. And the priest doesn't even hesitate. It says his heart was glad and that he himself, the priest, is the one who took the items, that all these religious items, and went with them. So again, I hope it's clear that nobody is doing anything that honors God here. Not the sons of Dan, not Micah, and not even the priest who doesn't think twice about betraying Micah and stealing his idols to join with the Danites. Do you see why we don't need to believe him when he tells the Danites that God is with them? Let's see how the story of the Danites ends. Let's pick back up in verse 21. Then they turned and departed and put the little ones and the livestock and the valuables in front of them. When they had gone some distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house assembled and overtook the sons of Dan. And they cried to the sons of Dan who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you have assembled together? And he said, You have taken away my gods which I made, and the priest, and I have gone away, and what, can I, what do I have besides? So how can you say to me, What is the matter with you? And the sons of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest fierce men fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. So the sons of Dan went on their way, and when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his house. Then they took what Micah had made, and the priests who had belonged to him, and came to Laish, a people quiet and secure, and struck them with the edge of the sword, and they burned the city with fire. And there was no one to deliver them, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. And it was in the valley which is near Beth Rehob. And they built, rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they called the name of the city Dan, after the name of Dan their father, who was born in Israel. However, the name of the city formerly was Laish. And the sons of Dan set up for themselves the graven image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershon, the son of Manasseh, he and his sons were priests to the tribes of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's graven image, which he had made all the time that the house of God was at Shiloh. 
So first Micah gathers some men and goes after them to try to get his gods back. The author is very intentional to write, the gods which I made. We know that God was not made by human hands. The author is making it clear that these were merely trinkets and had no power. And how sad is it then to hear Micah say, and what do I have besides? Can God ever be taken from us? Of course not. When you're following the one true God, you never have to worry that he would be taken from you. You could lose every possession that you have and still be rich because of the surpassing greatness of knowing him. Micah did not have God, so when his idols were taken, he had nothing. Let that never be said of us. Okay, so after Micah tries to take back his gods, he knew he was no match for the Danites, so he goes back home. Then the Danites come to Laish, which the author reminds us for a third time that they are a quiet and secure people with no protection. And then they wipe them out and take their city. So again, we're supposed to feel sorrow here. We're supposed to see the injustice of them attacking these peaceful people in this land that was at the very edge of the Canaanite border, far away from anybody else with nobody to help them. And we're supposed to see the sons of Dan as the bad guy, not God. God did not tell the Danites to do this. The priest saying that God was with them, like we've talked about, it was not a trustworthy source. And the kicker, while some translations read that the priest was the son of Manasseh, others read that he was the son of Moses. If that translation is the correct one, then that means that the priest was the direct descendant of Moses. And this is supposed to be shocking to us because the doctor, the author doesn't tell us who the priest is until the very end on purpose. It's meant to kind of be this shocker that drives home the point even further that this godly priest, ungodly priest, who has acted so terribly was the descendant of Moses. This is meant to show us how low they have come. This is a picture of a tribe that had completely strayed from God and God's leading. And as we keep hearing, doing what was right in their own eyes. And how does their story end? Well, what started with this isolated instance of idolatry for one man has now become an established idolatry of an entire tribe. We see a whole tribe that has set up their own form of worship with gods created by man and customs that directly oppose the one true God's clear instructions. What we are seeing through this story is that the tribe of Dan is lost. And if you need even more convincing that the tribe of Dan acted dishonorably, look at the book of Revelation. In chapter 7, verses 4 through 8, there is a list of the tribes of Israel that are represented in the new heavens and the new earth. And every tribe is listed except for one. Do you know which one that is? It's the tribe of Dan. They are simply not there. Again, the tribe of Dan is lost. Which brings us to the second story which is incredibly dark and disturbing. Chapter 19 opens again with reminding us that during this time there was no king, preparing the reader to read the story, knowing that this was a people acting entirely of their own accord, not by the will of God. This story is so shocking that rather than reading it verse by verse in sections and breaking it up, I'm gonna just sum up the whole story, letting it really sink in and adding in the context as I go. So we begin. Um, with a Levite in Ephraim, and that we're told that he has taken a concubine, which that in and of itself is a sign that things are really not as they should be, because God has been clear that men are to have one wife, but the culture has persisted in taking multiple wives and concubines to the point that now even the Levites were doing it. And as a concubine, she was sort of a second-class wife, um, and she was also kind of a sign of status for him. Concubines were treated more like property than a partner, and one commentator even likened them to kind of like a sex slave. Um, so this concubine, for one reason or another, we see that she leaves and goes home to her father. 
The text says here that she played the harlot, which could mean that she was unfaithful sexually, but um, others have noted that in the original language, it could also be interpreted that she was angry with him. So it is unclear what is the correct interpretation. Either she left because she cheated on him or she left because she was angry with him for some reason. But whatever her reasons for leaving, whether she was unfaithful or angry with him, she went home and she was with her father for four months before he decides to come and find her and bring her home. So he goes to get her and even though he waited four whole months to come for her, now he decides to speak tenderly to her to get her to come home. So now if we go back to the different possible interpretations of her playing the harlot, some point out here, that if she had cheated on him, um, it doesn't seem to make much sense that he would then come four months later and speak tenderly to her. He would probably be kind of angry with her. But if the interpretation is correct that she left because he had done something that made her very angry and she was angry with him, then it makes a lot more sense that he would wait a while and then come and speak tenderly to kind of woo her back. Um, also, the events that follow show us what kind of man this Levite was. So it seems easy to assume that he would have probably made her angry pretty often based on the kind of man he's about to show himself to be. Um, one person kind of pointed out that I was reading or listening to, to think about men who are abusive. What's the pattern that we see even today with abusive men? Well, they are abusive and they are abusive and they are abusive until the point that the woman finally leaves. And then eventually they're going to come back looking as though they've changed and they're super sweet and they're wooing the woman back and speaking tenderly to her. But then eventually they're going to fall back into their old abusive pattern. And so some have pointed out that it doesn't seem like too much of a stretch here to see that pattern happening. Um, but again, that just depends on the interpretation of how you, if the original language here. So now we're going to see that the Levite comes to get her and the girl's father is really glad to meet him. And she, he shows him great hospitality, really almost super uncomfortable hospitality. He keeps convincing him to stay more nights than he planned and then just one more and then just a bit longer. And now you've been here so late, it's too dark to stay a little bit more. And why is he doing that? Well, for one thing, that's giving us something to contrast with the lack of hospitality we're about to see, but also let's look at the different um, options of why she left. If she had in fact committed adultery, like the first interpretation would suggest, the consequences for adultery and for leaving your husband slash owner was death. And so on the other hand, if it's true that she left because he was abusive and she was mad at him, then the father knew that he's going to be sending her back to more abuse and more pain. So either way, he knows that he's sending her into a bad situation. And he kind of seems to be trying to get on the Levite's good side in some way. At best, he's doing this to help soften things for his daughter. And at worst, he's doing it just to protect his own reputation. Now, I want you to notice a few things about this. First, who have we not heard from? Who has not had a voice? The daughter. Has anyone asked her what she wants? Have her wishes been considered? No, we see that her father and her husband slash owner are deciding for her what she will do. She's basically treated like an object here. Now at the very beginning of Judges, we saw another story of a father and his daughter and her future husband. Do you remember that? It was Caleb and he was doing what he could do to find the best of the best for his daughter, Aksa. He was following God's leading and he was trusting that God is going to do what he said he would do. And then we saw in Aksa a woman who was cared for and whose best interests were a priority to her dad. We heard Aksa speaking, demonstrating her faith when she asked her father to bless her and her new husband with lands, with streams of water. We saw her as this strong picture of faith who was loved and tenderly cared for. She was not treated as property, but as somebody with value and dignity. So do you see this gap between how women were treated and regarded at the beginning of Book of Judges and now how they're treated and regarded near the end? Remember, 
The whole book of Judges is showing us the great digression of the Israelites. If it's not clear yet, it will be as the story goes on. Notice also here and in the rest of the story that almost everyone except the Levite is unnamed. Now, why is this? Well, many people that I read, comment, uh, different commentators and such, they pointed out that this tells us that these people are to represent not just themselves, but their whole culture. Their namelessness tells the reader that this isn't just how this specific person acted, but that this was how a Levite acted in general during that time, or this is how women were treated in general, etc. So while these are real people and this is a true story, their namelessness means that they are also meant to be a representation of what was normal in their culture in that time. So the girl's father and the Levite decide that she will go back with him and then they finally leave. And as they're traveling home, evening is coming and they need to stop and rest. They're passing a place called Jabus and their servant suggests stopping there. But this isn't a city of Israelites, so the Levite refuses and says that they should go further to a town of their own people. So they travel further and stay at an Israelite city called Gebeah, which was part of the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Now it's important not to miss that. They passed a Canaanite city in order to stay at an Israelite city, which makes sense, right? Now they're gonna be in a town of their own people. It probably would have seemed a lot more safe. So what happens? Well, from the start, they don't receive the same hospitality that we just saw with the concubine's father who kept begging them to stay longer and longer. We kind of saw an extreme with him and now we see the other extreme. Nobody here is even offering to give them a shelter, which went so strongly against the hospitality customs of that time. And then finally, a man who was not even a Benjamite, who was just living in this, in this town with Benjamites, he was actually from Ephraim, he offers to shelter them. So we're seeing nobody in this Benjamite town was helping them. It took an outsider to do it. And then he seems to know something that these travelers don't know because he basically says, yeah, come stay with me. Whatever you do, don't stay out here in the open. This man knew what kind of people he was living amongst. But once they get to his house, it's not long before the men of the city surround the house and they demand that the man who lives there bring the Levite out, the man who he was sheltering, so that they could have relations with him. Basically, they're wanting to rape this Levite man. Then the man who was sheltering bravely goes out and he refuses. So we see he starts off so well. He says, no, you're not going to hurt my guest. But then he does something incredibly appalling. He goes and offers his own virgin daughter, along with the Levite's concubine, over to them instead. He says to them, hey, take my daughter, take this, this my guest's concubine and do with them whatever you want. He offered to hand over his daughter and his guest's concubine to be raped and abused. Okay, I hope you're beginning to understand this by now, but we are not supposed to read this and think that God was okay with this. We are supposed to read this and be appalled at what the man and the Levite did. There's another story in Genesis about the city of Sodom. It was a city in Canaan where a similar situation happens. There were angels um, that were traveling and they came to a man named Lot and they're staying at his house and then men surround it and demand that Lot turn over the visitors so that they can have relations with them. Um, and we see that God destroys the city of Sodom because it is so evil. Sodom is basically a representation of evil in so many ways. And now we're seeing here that this Israelite city is looking exactly like it. These men from the tribe of Benjamin were acting in the same appalling ways that caused God to enact judgment on Sodom. They were acting in the same horrible ways that caused God to enact judgment on all of Canaan. They've been acting like Canaanites more and more all along, and now we have basically reached the end of the road. They're basically the new Sodom. Their actions have become incredibly dark, and I think that the author is showing us here in this story that they have reached the very depths of depravity that God had warned them about from the beginning. All right, so they offer the daughter and they offer the concubine, but the men outside aren't listening. So then the Levite decides to take this into his own hands and he grabs his concubine and he brings her out to them. 
and then they rape her and they abuse her all night. Did you catch that? The man hosting them was the one who offered both women, but the Levite physically grabbed and brought out his concubine by herself and handed her over to them. Again, she's just an object to be used in whatever way benefited all of the men involved. This was how the surrounding Canaanite culture is believed to have viewed women, and not at all how God views women. It's clear from the very beginning of the Bible that God created both men and women in his image, and that we are equal in value. How far the Israelites have strayed from God's original design. She is raped and beaten all night long, and look at how the Levite acts in the morning. At dawn she comes and falls in the doorway of the house, and she lay there until full daylight. So he clearly wasn't waiting up for her. He clearly wasn't in there biting his nails, worried about her well-being. He finally comes out to continue on his journey. It doesn't say he comes out to look for her. He says he finally comes out to go home after apparently having a pretty good night's sleep. And then he sees her and he says to her, get up and let's go. Where are those words of tenderness now? We see no affection. We see no concern for her, only callousness. And then he brings her home. And we're not told that she was dead when he found her, but one way or another, she ends up dead by the time they get home. And what does he do? He cuts her into 12 pieces and sends her throughout the territory of Israel. He's trying to get a response of the people to come and help him get revenge, but does it look like he wants revenge out of sorrow for this woman that he loved? There's nothing in the text that leads me to believe that he was motivated by love for her. Some have even said that maybe he was the one to finally kill her in order to do this thing that he was about to do, but we can't really say that for sure. The likely motivation he had, though, to cut her up and nail her out was he was upset about the loss of his property, not the loss of his love. And then what we see is that all of the tribes of Israel who get these pieces of her body come together like they never have before. They all want to enact justice on the men who did this, which really is a little bit of a good thing, right? I mean, they at least saw something wrong with what happened and they wanted to make it right. So this is showing us that at least the rest of Israel was not as bad as the Benjamites. So while we are seeing a bit of good on behalf of the Israelites, we also are seeing some more bad too, because first, who is still not considered? God. They aren't seeking God or asking his guidance. They're still doing right in their own eyes by deciding how they should deal with a tribe of God's people. Shouldn't God be the one to decide the fate of his own tribe? Also, did we ever see all tribes come together like this to fight any of their oppressors when God called them out to do it? Nope, just against themselves will they come together like this. And one more thing, look at how the Levite tells the story to all of them when they do come together. He makes it sound like he's completely and totally blameless. He claims, hey, these guys wanted to kill me, but we know that in reality that they wanted to rape him. And then he fails to mention that he handed her over to them with his own hands to do as they pleased. His account of it is completely self-serving. So the Israelites who had gathered, they decide that they need to take men from each tribe and they need to go and punish the men who did this crime against the Levite and his concubine. They go to Gebeah and rather than hand over the men who raped her, the people of Gebeah decide to fight back. So they get together, everybody from the tribe of Benjamin, they all, like people from all over the tribe, they all assemble for battle. And then we see here for the first time in the story that Israel actually inquires of the Lord. They ask God who they should send first to fight the Benjamites, and the Lord tells them that Judah shall go up first. So notice, they never asked the Lord if they should do any of this in the first place. They aren't asking him really to do, they aren't really asking him what to do, they're asking him more to be with them in what they've already decided to do. So they want God's blessing on their plans. 
So also notice that the Lord tells them who to send, but he doesn't promise them victory or tell them that he's going to be with them. This is very different from the previous battles in the book when the Lord initiated and leads from the beginning. I think that we're seeing here another picture of God working things out for his purposes, despite the sins of the people. God was dealing with all of his children here, not just Benjamin, because see what he does? They send the tribe of Judah first and they lose. God told them to send Judah, but he didn't give them victory. Instead, 22,000 men of Israel died. And then they wept before the Lord and they asked if they should go again. And the Lord said, yes. And when they did, they lost again and 18,000 more men died. So twice now, the Lord led them into battles where he allowed them to be slaughtered. God clearly has his own plans here. He's not just going to be their good luck charm that they can simply summon when they need him. And then finally, they go to the Lord again, and they give burnt offerings, and they fast, and they give these hints that maybe they really truly were seeking him now, more than they were before at least. And the Lord finally leads them into victory over the tribe of Benjamin. They win the battle, but they don't stop there. No, they don't stop when the battle is over. Instead, they go all throughout the territory of Benjamin, and they wipe out almost every man, woman, and child in the entire tribe. They have essentially erased one of their brother tribes. They have gone far beyond enacting justice for the actions of a group of men. This is a sad, sad event in the history of Israel. And then they realize what they've done and they weep bitterly and they lift up their voices and they say, why God has this happened in Israel? How is one tribe now missing? Which is obviously because they chose to kill them all, but they're acting almost as if they took no part in the destruction. And then we learn that they've made some rash oaths. Remember the oath that we saw in the book of Judges up, um, before now. It was Jephthah's oath to kill whoever came out of his house, and it in no way honored the Lord. Here we see yet another foolish oath where all of the Israelites vowed that they were not going to give their daughters in marriage to a Benjamite. And they probably felt like this was a pretty righteous vow at the time because they were so worked up over the sins of the Benjamites. And so it seemed like a really righteous and God-honoring thing to say, hey, I'm going to give an oath that I will never give one of my daughters to one of these horrible Benjamites. But really, what purpose did this oath serve? And now they're feeling sorrow that they killed all these Benjamites, except that there's a small group of about 600 Benjamite men left. But there's not a single woman or children alive. And so as things stand, the tribe is completely going to die out because they have no women to reproduce with these last 600 men. And so because they don't want to see one of their brother tribes erased, they're feeling bad now for what's happened and they're feeling all this sorrow, they want to fix the problem. They want to make sure that this tribe can live on, but they've made this oath. They've made this oath that they're not going to give their daughters in marriage to a Benjamite. So what are they to do? Where are they going to get women to make sure the tribe of Benjamin lives on? Well, then we learned that they made another oath that those among the tribes of Israel that didn't participate in this great assembly to the Lord that they had just had should be put to death. Because again, they probably felt like that was a righteous oath to make too, because after all, they're going to punish anybody who doesn't participate in this assembly, because if they, doesn't come, they don't come, that's basically like they're siding with the enemy, right? But really, does killing people who don't ascend a significant assembly of worship seem like it would truly honor the Lord? No. No, it does not. But conveniently, it somehow solves their problem of having no women to help this tiny remnant of Benjamin live on because they realized that there's this place that nobody came from. Nobody from the camp of Jabesh Gilead came to the assembly. So they decided that they needed to go and kill all of the men and all of the non-virgin women and all of the children there in order to honor their second oath that anybody who didn't come should be put to death. And then they decided that they were going to take all of the virgin women who were left 
and give them over to the Benjamites to help to preserve the tribe without breaking their first oath. So this way, they weren't giving their own daughters in marriage. Instead, they were just going to kill the men in a town of their own people and take those men's daughters to give to the Benjamites. They're just heaping sin upon sin, all disguised in the name of honoring the Lord. Is there anything here that looks honoring to God, though? So they wipe out this town, and they kill every man, woman, and child except for the virgins, and they find 400 virgins to give to these remaining Benjamites so that they can make peace with the Benjamites. But they still don't have enough women for all 600 men. And it says here that they felt sorry for the Benjamites because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So you see how they're taking no responsibility for what they have done? We know that, yes, the Lord is sovereign, and he had a reason for allowing this all to happen. But the Lord did not tell them to kill every man, woman, and child from the tribe of Benjamin. That was their own doing. How convenient it is to blame God for situations that we humans create for ourselves. So then they want to find more women for the remaining Benjamites, and they remember that there's a feast in Shiloh every year, and it's coming up. So they tell the rest of the Benjamites that still don't have wives. I think there's about 200 of them at this point. They say, hey, go hide around the feast. And when women come out of the feast area to these like kind of more um, open fields and areas, you're going to come out and you're going to steal them and take them for yourselves. And that is their messed up way of getting around their oaths not to give their daughters to the Benjamites. Because, hey, they're not giving their daughters. The Benjamites are just taking them. So, you know, totally upright and honorable. No, this is not honorable. This is completely and totally distorted worship and not honoring to God in any way. We are supposed to see here a picture of what man does when left to their own devices and when they have turned from the Lord for so many generations, immersing themselves in a culture that God clearly wanted to keep them from. So the Benjamites stole girls and women during this feast and took them as wives and went to start rebuilding their cities. And we end with the bleak statement once again that helps us to interpret these events, lest we wrongly think that these actions were sanctioned by God. And we read that in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So what do we take from this? How should this change us? First, look at the women throughout the book. In the beginning, we had women like Exa being cared for, and Deborah, who is highly respected and leading an entire nation, and Jael, who is brave and heroic. And in the end, we end with this unnamed concubine being raped and treated as an object, following by, followed by hundreds of women who are stolen from their murdered families, only to be raped and forced into marriages that they did not choose. Do you remember Sisera in the story of Deborah? He was known by everyone for the fact that he raped women, and God allowed two women to be used in his downfall. Here we see that the same treatment of women is now commonplace in Israel. They did not drive out the Canaanites, and now they are treating women the same as the worst of their oppressors did. Women had been reduced to objects. And it's easy to look at stories like this in isolation and think that the Old Testament, or even that God himself, doesn't treat women well. But I hope that you see here that God values women so much that the poor and violent treatment of women is shown here as almost the ultimate picture of a people who had essentially rejected God. So we should leave here knowing our value as women created in his image and that he is incredibly grieved when we suffer abuse. Second, did you see how these people manipulated religion to justify their own selfish and rash actions? They made oaths that served no purpose other than to feel more righteous than others, and then they murdered and raped and kidnapped in the name of keeping those oaths. We probably can't relate to that because it seems pretty extreme, 
But do we ever lean on religion to justify judgment of other people? Maybe even hatred sometimes? Do we ever look at another person's sin and then feel justified to treat them poorly? Have we replaced an honest and faithful pursuit of God with doing whatever we want and merely asking him to bless what we are already deciding is right? Which leads me to the third takeaway from this story. Do we live as though God is our king? Or do we live according to what seems right in our own eyes? To be a follower of Jesus is to submit to his authority in your life. It's to say, not my plans, but yours, God. Not my will, but yours, God. I'm not the ultimate authority in my life. You are God. If you are realizing right now that maybe you've been living your whole life as though you're the Lord, you can change that right now. It only takes confessing it to God and asking that he would be your Lord. Becoming a Christian means dying to self. It means realizing that our own will is not ultimate. And it means having the humility to realize that God is God and we are not. That his plans are better than ours and then submitting to his rule in our lives. Don't be like the Israelites clinging to pieces and remnants of faith blended with the beliefs of the culture around us. Ask instead that God would come into your life and be your Lord. Pray with me. God, thank you. Thank you for the book of Judges. It's so incredibly deep and rich and fruitful, and I just am so glad that we've had the opportunity to study it. And God, I just pray that as we've been studying it, that your spirit has been working in our hearts and in our lives and changing us. And I pray that as we finish and move forward, that you would continue to work in our lives and continue to bring the truths that are so important that we learned here into our minds as we go um, throughout our days, Lord. I pray that you would show us moving forward the times that we are acting the way that the Israelites acted. I pray that you would, your spirit would convict us moving forward whenever we begin to do what's right in our own eyes. God, I pray that we would not um, have the same faith that the Israelites had with these two stories, Lord, but that we instead um, would just be able to, to follow you faithfully, Lord. I pray that just by the power of your spirit, that we would follow you faithfully and that we would experience the fullness and the richness of knowing you, Lord. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.